Oh, well, we've had that happen before. Yes, we have. Had that happen. Yes, we have. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Let's go over a couple of announcements. He called the little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I'll tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like little children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18, verses 2 and 3. Uh, if you would like to send Doc Riffle a card, uh, his, his address is up here on the, on the, the bulletin here. Uh, we're going back to putting our offerings in the offering box for the time being. Uh, and we have baby bottle campaign again and that's on and I guess if we have any questions on that we can approach Sheila uh, okay Andrea is our contact number again for things uh, uh, days and Praise booklets are here, along with Acts and Facts. Our scripture for meditation is taken from Matthew 18, verses 1 through 9, page 1526 in the Pew Bible. And I understand Lapeer is getting out of power, so we're going to have to read fast. <laughs>
Would you stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer? George, would you lead us, please? Please remain standing for our first song. Take your brown hymnals this morning and turn to number 625, 625 in the brown. with masks and do you have a favorite hymn this morning all right Naomi I ignored you a few weeks ago so you were the first hand 404 is that what I, I, I can't understand you 404 in the brown all right do you have a reason for that hymn this morning Naomi four in the brown.
Our scripture reading for this morning is actually going to be a responsive reading taken from the book of Psalm 119, verses 1 through 24. It'll be the Red Trinity hymnal, page 829. If you'll stand with us. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts, and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. 
Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove me from scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will mediate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. O Lord, may you add your blessing to this holy and inspired work in Scripture. Please remain standing. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 382. 382.
Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Our scripture text is Matthew nine, Matthew eighteen. Excuse me, Matthew eighteen. We'll be looking at the first nine verses. In our series on living faith, our last study, we learned that God is the one that gifts gifts faith to people. And then through that faith, we grasp hold of Christ in our salvation. And not only so, but we live our day-to-day lives in obedience to him, resting on uh, faith in the word of God. We used Abraham and his example, the father of the faithful, and he is. You remember he was called from a pagan culture and an idolatrous family. Even with his little faith, he obeyed, he left for a land a promise that God would afterward give to him and to his descendants. I think of myself and, and, and wonder, would I have done that? You have to think of yourself sometimes in terms of the application. This God who he doesn't know comes to him and says, look, I want you to go to such and such a land, such and such a place, and I'm going to give it to you and so forth. And the scripture says he went out to a land he didn't know where he was going. That's real trust. He also exhibited faith to live in the present Though he was a very wealthy man, Abraham, he lived his life on earth in a nomadic style, moving from pasture land to pasture land in tents. And the scripture says he was looking for the city whose architect and builder was God. He didn't find it in Palestine, but he was looking for it. Until he found it, by faith he found it, he was going to live in tents. You all know that tents is not a, that's not a permanent structure. He also had future faith. He saw that city with lasting foundations by faith as he appeared in the future and believed that God had prepared a heavenly city for him and for all who trust in Christ. We might say that it was a miraculous faith. Miraculous in this sense, though reproductively dead, Abraham believed that God would grant him and Sarah a son and that through that son would come the coming Messiah, the Savior. Oh, and by the way, we learned it was a tenacious faith. Tenacious in this sense that when God commanded him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice to God... He could and would raise Isaac from the dead if need be because all God's promises to Abraham were to be fulfilled through Isaac and Abraham believed that. Oh, if God wants me to take the life of my son, you remember the whole incident of him raising the knife to take the life and God stopped him. But the New Testament author says he believed that even if God would have allowed him to 
go through with the whole execution of his son, he believed that God had the power to raise Isaac from the dead. Brethren, that's faith. That's faith. He so believed that the promises were to come through this specially gifted son that if God said take his life, he will just have to raise him up to keep his promises. And so it was. Well, today I want to talk about faithful children, faithful children. As we come, let's ask for the Lord's intervention. Holy Father, send your word to us in power and authority. As we talk about faithful children. We pray for faithful children. We think of Mother's Day, we think of Father's Day, and most people don't know there is such a thing as Children's Day. It's wise that we consider the fact that our offspring are an inheritance given to us by God and a charge given to us that we're to raise our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. They don't just grow up like Topsy. No, there's an instruction that has to go with our obligation. So I pray that you'll help us to see that. Bless us with the responsibility to do it for the glory of Christ. If we expect another generation of Christians to come along, it will be because we have taught them and we have valued them in such a way as to bring them to a knowledge of the word of God, to the Christ, to the Savior. And if we don't do that, there won't be a spiritual generation to take over. I help, hope you will help us to see that and believe it and to act accordingly. For your glory and our good, we ask this in the extension of the gospel. Amen. Brethren, did you know that there's such a thing as Children's Day? I'm, I'm talking uh, as a, a national holiday. We have Mother's Day, we have Father's Day, but yes, there is such a thing in our country as Children's Day. Actually, Children's Day predates Mother's Day and Father's Day, dating back to 1856. Our church was founded in 1840, so figure that out. 1856, when some of the New England churches, Universalists, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists all got together and they designated the second Sunday of June as Children's Day. In more modern times, President Clinton proclaimed Children's Day to be October 8th, and later President George W. Bush moved it back to the second Sunday in June to comply with the historical dates of the original observance. What is of interest to us this morning is whether there's a day that a child can come to know Christ as Savior and live for him at an early age. Is that possible? Or is salvation and living by faith only for adults? Well, you know, the fact is that God's commands to parents was that they were to teach their children of God presupposing, guess what, hello, big event, that they could learn of God if the parents would take 
the initiative to teach. We look at a number of these scriptures. Let me highlight some of the dominant texts. For example, Genesis 18, verse 19. God chose Abraham, saying, here's what he said. I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what's right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised to him. Genesis 18, verse 19. Isn't that interesting? God chose Abraham so that he would teach his children. Moses, in rehearsing the law of Israel, said, These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them down on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Deuteronomy 6, verse 6 through 9. There's a biblical warrant for hanging scripture verses all around your dwelling. Wise man Solomon said, My son, keep your father's commands and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them upon your heart forever. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For these commands are a lamp. This teaching is a light and the corrections of discipline are the way of life. There's the three L's in that text. They're a lamp, they're a light, they're life. That's what the commands of God are. That's Proverbs 6, verse 20 through 23. Coming over to the New Testament, Paul, the apostle, says, Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, verse 4. And from Timothy's Example, this training done by his mother and his grandmother had begun at an early age. Paul said, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have come, become convinced of because you know from those whom you, from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Now the implication of all these scriptures is, and many more by the way, <clears throat> is that since God commands parents to teach their children the things of God from the word of God, the implication is that children obviously must be able to respond to these truths on their level. That's why we have such things as Sunday school, Bible school, colleges, and so on. God is not playing games with us. There is purpose and resolve behind every command. His heart goes out to children in the gospel, as well as to adults. And in fact, Jesus indicates in our text that children do believe in him as Savior and do have a proclivity to trust him in faith. And this is so much the, the case, <clears throat> excuse me, that child faith, child faith is put forth as the model faith. Isn't that interesting? Matthew's account seems to indicate 
that the disciples simply had a question for Jesus. Verse 1. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But the parallel texts of Mark and Luke's gospel paint a more sinister scenario. Let me read it for you. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you, uh, what were you arguing about on the road, Jesus asked. But they kept quiet because on the way <clears throat> they had argued about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Mark 9, verse 33, verse 34. Or if you want it from Luke's gospel, Luke 9, verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to who of them would be the greatest. You see where their head was, right? The disciples at this period in their training were all into themselves. They were vying within the group for supremacy, to be the boss, to be the leader, the vice regent under Christ. They did not want to take orders, they wanted to give orders. There was no humility of heart, there was no compassion for the other person, there was no sense of letting others step into the spotlight and be recognized for their skills. No, they were pushing and shoving, metaphorically of course, to position themselves at the front of the line. Barbara Streisand's song in People has the phrase, acting more like children than children. That was the disciples. This is what they were doing among themselves. This is what they were arguing about. So when Jesus asked them about their argument, the scripture shows they were too ashamed to answer, but he knew their thoughts. So what did he do? Well, our text tells us he called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, did I read that right? He's talking to the 12 disciples or the 11 because Judas is gone by this time. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change, you guys got to change. And if you don't change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. There is something radically, radically wrong. And he goes on to say, therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All three gospel writers include this thought. Let me read it for you. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. Luke 9 verse 48. Oh, they didn't get that. But there are some sobering conclusions drawn from just these few verses when you think about them. The disciples who already think of themselves as citizens of God's kingdom are told by Jesus, unless you change, unless you become like little children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What? Oh, Lord, you can't be saying that. You can't be serious. We're in the kingdom. We're following you. And Jesus is saying, mm, no, you got to change or you'll never enter. So all this spiritual arm wrestling that they were engaged in to see who could win the dominant position in the kingdom of God is in fact an indictment against them that they are in jeopardy of not even entering the kingdom of heaven because they are guilty of the damning sin of pride. And you remember it was pride that was the first sin. It deposed Satan. And now is about to do the same with these disciples so-called. And the change Jesus was indicating that must take place in their lives is spelled out in verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Yes, greatest in, but even more importantly, in, in. Not outside thinking they are in when they're not. The disciples were sidetracked, wrestling with subordinate issues. Greatest in was not as important as being in, you see. That must have been a shock for them to hear that. And the second conclusion is just as shocking. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, says Jesus. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Just in case the disciples did not have a grasp of the true nature of lordship, of what it meant to be the boss, and they didn't have a true recollection. Jesus indicates his leadership role with that of a humble child. Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, me. Earlier on, Jesus had pointed out to his followers Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 11, verse 29, verse 30. In other words, crushing people by brandishing power, brandishing authority, was not Jesus' idea of leadership. It was a theme Jesus was to repeat again and again because pride was ever a problem with these men. Remember the whole foot washing scene of John 13? That arose because the disciples themselves were too proud to serve one another in that lowly bond slave position. We read the preamble. Jesus, 
knowing that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God, was returning to God. He didn't have an identity crisis, you see. He knew he, who he was. He knew where he was going. So, we read, he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel with which he had wrapped himself. John 13, verses 3 through 5. And the lesson of that event, in Jesus' own words, was this. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am, now that I... Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. John 13, verse 13 through 17. What is he saying? He's saying that to act as Lord over others as greatest in the kingdom will mean becoming servant to all. And the humility to do that is epitomized in a child. When our grandchildren were young, they would come over to visit us. You know what they did? They would bug Grandma to be able to help get the meal on the table or set the table or run an errand. They were full of what I would call the servant spirit. When I was growing up, my dad was always involved in some kind of project, working on his truck, sorting scrap, building something from wood, and I would be underfoot all the time asking, can I help? Can I help? Can I help? That wasn't unusual. That was just normal. Children do vie for the me first position, but we teach them to share, to take turns, to deal with their desire to be first, but we generally do not have to compel them to assume a servant role. And so, verse 2, Jesus said, become like little children. See, they're already in a state of humility. They're already in a state of service by virtue of their smallness, their inexperience, their willingness to learn and please. And in verse 4, Jesus identifies this trait as humility. That's children. They humble oneself. They learn humility. We are to humble ourselves and learn humility and follow that example. So the first thing to know is that Jesus would say to adults, hmm, you need to become more like children in this area of humility and faith. And that's the second point. Children can exercise saving faith in Christ. 
Look, verses 6 and 7. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they do come. Or again in verse 10, See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. And then in verse 11, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Consider verse 14, which is also of the manu- in the manuscripts. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Matthew 18, verse 14. Oh, God has a per- special watch care over the children. So we had better watch how we handle the children. How we discipline, how we teach, and so on. Now, in these texts, Jesus is not identifying two ways of salvation, one for children, one for adults, but he is establishing the truth that children, as with adults, may possess and exhibit saving faith in him. He calls them these little ones who believe in me. I didn't say it, Jesus said it. Verse 6. These little ones who believe in me. By the way, these little ones have representative angels in heaven who always have access to the Father, verse 10. Hebrews 1.14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? I'm reading scripture. So if these little ones have angels watching over them, they're destined to have salvation. like the lost sheep one in a hundred whom the good shepherd searches for all in the wilderness and in the same way your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost verse 14 it's not willing it's eternally secure in Christ just like any adult who believes the children who believe in me Does it not teach us that children are not, they are not, second-class citizens in the kingdom of God? If they're saved, they're saved. In fact, they do not have some spiritual things going, they do not have some spiritual things going for them, uh, like a servant heart and a humble heart. They have those things going for them, which, of course, would put a check on such things as pride and arrogance and lack of humility and all of those things that we adults have trouble with. I mean, think about it. Are not children generally eager to learn? They generally are. Aren't they generally teachable? Yeah. Aren't they willing to believe unless they're faced with hypocrisy in their mentors? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, time, time has its effect on the teaching process. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 3, verse 13. Encourage one another daily, 
as long as it's called today, mm -hmm, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 3 verse 13. That's interesting. We learned in a previous study that children are not born innocent. That's true. They are born sinners just like us, but they are but there is yet a pliability in children in their personalities when young that disappears with age as sin's deceitfulness begins to harden them. And that, that's what sin does to us all. Don't we use the word innocent about children? Now we know they're sinners and they're on their level. But we talk about them being, oh, she's such an innocent little child. She's an innocent baby. And there is a sense in which that is true because they haven't lived life long enough to be hardened in this sinful world by all that the world wants to dump on them. But boy, the world does dump. And what starts out as pliable and teachable and reachable and all of that begins to get harder and harder and resistant or it's the things of God. And by the way, that is why we teach children the things of God while they are young. Before the agnostics and the atheists and the unbelieving world takes a whack at them through sinful solicitation and lies and anti-God instruction. Of which our world is full. So before the hard knocks of bad experiences makes them cynical, we're at the work of teaching. And a child of faith, like an adult of faith, is protected from the wiles of the devil through the shield of faith. Remember that armor that we are given to protect us? The shield of faith. In fact, from our text, it appears... It appears that Christ is particularly, particularly protective of believing children and gives stern warning to anyone who would try to destroy their faith or hinder their allegiance to Christ. Let me read it for you. Verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, if anyone does that, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned into the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they do come. Matthew 18, verse 6 and 7. If any of you ever have been to Grindstone City, you, you've seen the huge, literally huge grindstones used in the process of grinding meal and stuff. There, there's from the floor up to here or higher. And they weigh tons. And Jesus is saying, go ahead, offend one of these little children that believe in me. Destroy their faith. Go ahead and do it. See what happens to you. 
It would be better for you if that millstone were hung around your neck and you were drowned into the depths of the sea forever. That's how precious Jesus thinks of the little children that believe in him. Look at verse 10. See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones. I'm reading scripture. Don't look down on Sad to say, this too was an ongoing problem in Jesus' disciples. In the very next chapter, this incident arose. Listen, let me read it for you. Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And when he had placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Matthew 19, verse 13 through 15. Mark's account is even more strong. We read, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Can you believe that? And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them. And he blessed them. Mark 10, verse 13 through 16. Now that gives a perspective concerning teaching and rearing children in the faith that we parents need to remember. Luke's account gives these clarifications. It says people were also bringing babies to Jesus, I'm reading scripture, to have him touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them, they rebuked the parents. But Jesus called the children him, that is, he bypassed the disciples, he went directly to the children, and he said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Luke 18, verse 15 and 16. Brethren, in light of these injunctions by Jesus, it is not wise, it is not wise to tell little children that they're too young to know the Lord. You have an inquisitive child in your family, don't throw cold water on their flame of trust. That's true. It's true, we are cautious and observant when dealing with the testimony of young children because of the tendency to copycat older siblings. They want to be like big brother or big sister. But let us not squash genuine faith which will evidence itself in their repentance for the sins of youth. Lies, deception, bullying, self-centeredness, disobedience to parents... The sins of youth. And where there is true change of behavior, 
You have true faith. You know, I know many adults, many adults now, who claim to know Christ as Savior, but they have no change in behavior. They're fooling themselves. They're self-deceived. Jesus acknowledged children who believed in him. He warned us not to hinder them in their faith or to cause them to sin. By the way, I don't think this is just for parents, but it's for all of us Christians. Because the kids are watching us. We're not perfect. When we sin, we should confess that. Yeah, Dad shouldn't have said that. Yeah, Mom shouldn't have done that. They need to see that we're vulnerable to the sin nature. That's why we need a Savior. We need a Savior, kids. And you need the Savior, too. We're not perfect. We need God's grace. But you know the wonderful thing about all of this, as we've been talking this morning, is that we have great examples of believing children in the Scripture. Believing children in the Scripture. So this isn't just... Me talking. (laughs) I have proof that there is such a thing as children who can believe in Christ and be saved. For example, Samuel, who became God's prophet and priest. Now, everyone's not going to become a prophet and a priest. That's not the point. My point is that as a child, he exhibited faith. Who was Samuel? Well, He was the miracle child of Hannah and Elkanah in answer to Hannah's prayer because she was barren. And in keeping her promise, she dedicated Samuel to God's ministry and brought him as a boy to live with Eli the priest, saying, here I'll read her words, Now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And the scripture says he worshiped the Lord there. 1 Samuel 1, verse 28. This is quite a thing. You remember Eli the priest? (laughs) Eli had wicked sons who were using their office as priests to rob God of the choice portions of the offerings, the animal sacrifices that were being brought in to be sacrificed to God, they'd take out the best portions for themselves. And also, they were fornicating with the servant women who ministered at the tabernacle. So robbing God of the choice offerings, committing fornication with the servant girls. Yet we read, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy wearing a linen ephod, a priest's garment. 1 Samuel 2, verse 18. And verse 26 of that same chapter says, And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. God was doing something special in his life. When Eli was warned of God that because of his sin and the sins of his sons, 
which he allowed to continue unchecked, that they would all die in a day. This added explanation was made. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and my mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before me as my anointed one always. 1 Samuel 2 verse 35. We read from the third chapter this morning, the Lord came and stood there calling at the, as he had done at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel answered, speak for your servant is listening. And what followed was God's full disclosure of the judgment he was going to bring on Eli and his sons for their sin, which Samuel reiterated to Eli that very next morning. The very next morning. God was already beginning to speak through the boy, through the boy Samuel as his prophet. Chapter 3, verse 19 says, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground, and all Israel recognized that Samuel was attested, that is, recognized as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. A boy more righteous than Eli the priest. You remember it was Samuel who delivered Israel from the Philistines after the ark had been stolen. It was later he anointed Saul as Israel's first king and later still David as Israel's most godly king. Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. His legacy and his own words were this. I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all of your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. 1 Samuel 12, verse 22 and following. What a legacy. He could say that at the end of his life. The boy child was a greater spiritual light than Eli the priest and his wicked sons. Hmm. Another child example would be the servant girl in Naaman's house, and I love this story. Do you ever think about this? The Bible says, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. That's who he was. Commander of the army of the king of Aram. Let me read on. He was a great man in the sight of his master. Highly regarded. Because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. But. Uh oh. Look out for the butts. But. He had leprosy. 1 Kings 5, verse 1. Um, oh, don't care how great a commander you are, your days are numbered if you have leprosy. And verse 2 reads, Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. 
she said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Notice it's a definitive statement. He would cure him of his leprosy. Now, I don't, I think he would. It'd be nice if he would. Hope he would. No. You get your commander, you get him to see this prophet, and that prophet will cure him of his leprosy. That's a definitive statement of faith in a kid. So, Naaman went to his master and he told him what the girl of Israel said. And the scripture says he was instructed, By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will even send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left. 2 Kings 5, verse 2 and 5. Little kid's testimony to the king. He says, okay, I'll send you and I'll give you a letter of recommendation. Without money, without price, without great works of benevolence, Naaman, after some reluctance, obeyed Elisha. What did Elisha tell him to do? You remember? Let me tell you. He was told to go dip himself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll come out whole, clean like that of a young boy. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14. Go dip yourself seven times in the Jordan. What's wrong with that? Well, Jordan was a mud hole. That's what was wrong with it. It was a filthy river. You remember the argument. Couldn't, couldn't, I, couldn't I have a nicer stream to go dip in? But he did. He finally got to the point where he did it. He came out whole. He came out clean like that of a young boy, the scripture says. When he came to thank Elisha, his confession was this. Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. I'm reading scripture. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but to Jehovah. 2 Kings 5.17 What do you want the dirt for? He's going to build an altar using Palestinian dirt back to Syria. He's going to build an altar and he says, I will never again sacrifice to any other God other than Jehovah of Israel and on an earthen altar like you Jews do. Wow. All this because a little Jewish girl shared her faith in God with Naaman's wife. Children, 
will have faith in Christ. You all remember Joseph? He was but a boy when his older brother sold him into slavery out of jealousy. Reuben's own words were, he went back to his brothers and he said, the boy isn't there where they put him, you know. So they devised this elaborate scheme to fool Jacob by, you know the story, dipping Joseph's coat in animal blood, claiming that some ferocious beast had killed him in the pasture land. But meanwhile, it says in the scriptures, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, Genesis 37, verse 36. And there, though tempted to advance himself, through a sexual favor to Potiphar's wife, he refused, saying, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Genesis 39.9 But a boy that had that kind of spiritual fortitude. There are lots of others. In the New Testament, we have Mary, who was but a girl of about 15, 16, when she agreed to become the mother of the Lord, saying, I am the Lord's servant, may it be to me, as you have said, Luke 1, verse 38. Think also of the boy who gladly gave up his few loaves of bread and fish to Christ, that a whole multitude could be fed on that day. Think of Timothy, whose youth seemed to be a drawback to his acceptance as a pastor, and yet Paul could write of him, And to the church at Philippi, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his or her own interest. Not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself. Because as a son with a father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Philippians 2 verse 19 and Children, youth, serving the Lord. You all remember Rhoda, the servant girl, found praying with the church for Peter's release from prison in Acts? There she was, among the group, praying. We have these examples in the scripture time and time again of children, of children who had faith in God, followed after him in Christ. So let me close with a charge to believing children. Number one, obey your parents. The mark of unbelieving unbelieving children, let me read it for you, is disobedience to parents named as a sin of worthy of death in Romans chapter 1, in which the deadly sins are listed in verse 30. So if God has come into your life, if God has saved you from your sin, then a new life of faith will result. And in compliance with Ephesians 6 and verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. It's the right thing to do. If your parents do not know the Lord, you're still required to obey them in all areas wherein they do not ask you to sin. This is your testimony to them. Of a life that's ruled by Christ. 
You obey when unsaved brothers and sisters do not obey. You set the example. You prove that your heart is a different, in a different nature than theirs. God explained to Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the Lord, the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. 1 Kings 15, verse 23. Likewise, rebellion against parents is to rebel against God who commands you to obey them in what is right. Now, if they ask you to sin, of course, you're not obligated to obey that. And have we forgotten, Ephesians 6, verse 2, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. God will see to that, you see, Ephesians 6, verse 2, if you honor your father and mother. Honor, what's that? Well, this word is the same word used of Jesus' attitude towards his father, when he says, I honor my father, John 8, verse 49. Same Greek word. And Christ has promised, my father will honor the one who serves me. John 12, verse 26. Jesus warned, God said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses father or mother must be put to death. He's quoting Proverbs 20, verse 9. You can curse your parents to their face or you can breathe it in still under your breath and say the same wicked sins. But they're both wicked and you must repent and learn instead to honor them as parents whether you think they deserve it or not. If the problem is that you do not like taking orders, I want you to think of Christ himself. The Lord and Savior, as a boy, we are told, he went down to Nazareth with them, with his parents, and was obedient to them. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Luke 2, verse 51 and 52. Obedient children who honor their parents are loved by God, but also by the observing public who appreciate their respect for their parents and those in authority. People don't hate you for that. They say, wow, what well-disciplined kids. What great kids. What personalities. They see it. Let me just close by saying if you're a son or daughter here this morning who does not know Jesus as Savior, the charge is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. There's no need for you to wait until you're older or to wait till you become an adult. Waiting can prove hurtful. I know that. Waiting can harden your heart against God. I've seen it happen. In the ministry. Waiting can turn your eyes and hearts towards things of the devil who promise the moon, promises the moon and delivers destruction, misery, and death. That's what he'll give you. May none here 
live such a wasted life. Boy, what a wasted life. Die so empty-handed and alone. Let me read Jesus' words. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Luke 9, verse 23 and The world applauds what God condemns and it scorns what God approves. Stand with God, young people. None who stand with him die as losers. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. How we need to be instructed from your word. So our world holds out little baubles and, you know, a great sport car, wealthy outcome, big bank account, power position, all of those things. But it's wood, hay, and stubble because it's all destined to perish. Only what's done for God, with God, will last. In other words, this world is the proving ground, the training ground for the world to come. And if we're all caught up in the things of the world that are full of sinful appetites and desires, then the world that's going to come for us isn't going to be very pleasant. Not at all. For God has promised that although there is a heaven to be gained, there is a hell to be avoided. And there are people who are living like hellcats and happy to do so. Not recognizing whatsoever that what is in their future is for eternity. Not just the 70 or 80 years of their life on earth, but for all of eternity. Help us to read Luke 15 more accurately. This the account of the man named Lazarus that went to the place of the dead and there was confronted with those who were in torture. And they pleaded with Lazarus, Oh, God, please send Lazarus back just just to dip his finger in a little bit of water and touch us on the tongue that we might be relieved of the torture for just a second. That's what hell is all about. That's how horrible sin is in the sight of God. That is the penalty Jesus took in order to set us free. If our sin is punished in Christ, then God cannot punish us for it as well. If Jesus paid for our sin, then he paid for it all, 
and there's nothing left for us to pay but simply to believe. Lord, grant us that faith. Grant us that repentance to run from sin, to run to Jesus. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 284. 284. How will people know that we're Christians? Well, because we said we are. No, that's not going to cut, cut it with anybody. They're not going to believe anything you have to say just because you say it. This hymn addresses that issue. They'll know we are Christians by our life. 284 in the back. Let's stand together as we sing. servant girl in the day of Elisha exhibited her love for God when she sent word to Naaman you know there's a prophet 
in Israel that can help you with your leprosy. I know he can help you. You just need to go see him. What did Naaman know about prophets in Israel? (laughs) He's a commander in Aram's army. Pagan country. He didn't know anything about prophets. Not godly prophets. She testified of her faith. Even kids can share their faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they shame us adults sometimes because they're a vulnerability and an innocence in children where they just blurt it out. I hope that's a lesson to us as well. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the children that speak up for the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us adults to be bold and to have that same kind of humility. It isn't great lessons. It isn't great um, teaching that convinces people of the gospel. It's the work of the Holy Spirit as they hear the gospel. There's a Savior for sinners. He's come. He's paid the price. He's died the death. And if we'll trust him, if we will believe and lay our emphasis on his work, not our own, his goodness, not our goodness, because there's none in us that's good. If we will allow him, as it were, by faith to be our substitute. If we'll believe that he will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Lord, we will benefit. We will be saved. I pray that you will do that for us and that Christ will get the glory. He deserves the glory. And we thank you, dear Savior, for your great sacrifice. The work of the cross extends from the generation of before the foundations of the world, the scripture says. Christ was crucified in the mind of God. It was a done deal. That God was going to save a people from this wicked world for himself. He was going to have a family. And I pray that we're all in the family. And if not today, Lord Jesus, bring us to faith. Amen.